Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. If you're a longtime listener of this show, you know that every summer we pick something for us to all read together and discuss together as a community. The WDET Book Club selects a work that highlights and exposes the way that inequality is built into the very foundations of our society. Over three summers, we've read both nonfiction and fiction. Last year, we read Ralph Ellison's novel, Invisible Man, which was a really profound way to contemplate and discuss in the wake of the murder of George Floyd at the hands of a police officer in Minneapolis the many ways that race inequality shapes life in America. This year, we're doing something a little different. This summer, we're going to stare directly into the words that launched the United States of America. Through our reading of the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights, we want to think really hard about the ways that those documents have framed, have helped overcome, and yes, often have frustrated the push for equality in America. Equality. It's a word with such deep and conflicting meaning in this country for Americans of all hues, religions, and beliefs. Equality was invoked from the very beginning of the American experiment. But today, 245 years later, it still remains elusive and even undefined for so many. From now until right around Constitution Day in September, we want to lead discussions here on the show about the ways that the things that we're talking about now, the arguments that we're having, the division we're experiencing in America, find their origins in those original words. And during in-person and Zoom events where we dig deep into the demon's of inequality that still haunt our republic, we want to welcome you more into that conversation. It is going to be a really great 12 weeks between now and Constitution Day in September, and I am really excited for all of the things that we will talk about together and hopefully learn. If you want to join us in this exploration, you can find more information at wdet.org slash constitution, where you can also find out how to get a free WDET pocket constitution. And joining me now to talk about why we chose this project and why it's important is someone who knows this subject extremely well and who will be helping us navigate all of this throughout the summer. Barbara McQuaid is a law professor at the University of Michigan and the former United States attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. Barb, welcome back to Detroit Today. Uh, thanks very much, Stephen. I am delighted to be with you uh, to help uh, with such an important project. Yeah, it's really great to have you as as part of it as well. Um, so let's let's begin here and talk about the ways in which you think reading the Constitution and going back to those original wor- words is helpful when we're looking at the ways that equality and inequality are baked into our political structures and our government? Well, I think it is extremely important to understand where we've been if we want to understand where we want to go. Uh, There's been a lot of criticism, I think, 
recently about the idea of uh, critical race theory and looking back at parts of our history that maybe are uncomfortable and unpleasant. But I think it's really important to understand that and to understand how we've built up and around it because our system is based on this concept of stare decisis, which means to stand by things decided. So our Supreme Court has four centuries looked at the text of the Constitution and interpreted it. And then with each subsequent decision, it builds on the past. Uh, one of the things that one of the Supreme Court justices, Louis Brandeis, once said is that following uh, stare decisis is important uh, because um, it is more important that the applicable rule of law be settled than it be settled right. And so uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes also said the life of the law has not been logic but experience. And so we build on all of those prior decisions to reach where we are. And so the things that are baked into our constitution, with the world as it existed in 1787, including slavery and you know women not having the right to vote, uh, all of those things have slowly evolved to where we are today. But you know we're only moving toward a more perfect union. We're not there yet. Mm. So let's talk a little about where the country was on the question of equality when the constitution was was ratified and the and the the nation began and that that sort of bedrock notion of equality in some ways america starts with the idea of equality i mean it is a word that that is used a lot in the discussions and the arguments uh, leading up to the Constitutional Convention, of course, uh, the Declaration of Independence uh, talks about uh, the the equality among among men, uh, as they put it then. Um, but but what is it about uh, the founding of this nation uh, that finds its footing in the idea of equality, and why have we had? such a hard time over the last 245 years, really coming to reckon with what that means and for whom? I, I think one of the great contradictions of our Constitution and all of our founding documents, as you said, you know, we just celebrated uh, Independence Day and our found, one of our primary founding documents, the Declaration of Independence, talks about all men are created equal. Well, um, you know, men, first of all, uh, does excludes women. Um, and I think what they had in mind when they talked about men were white men of privilege, not, you know, not just even all men, but men who had land who were allowed to vote. So they had in their minds a certain group of people that wanted to break free of, uh, of, of England and all these wonderful lofty notions, but based on certain assumptions, you know, right in the constitution, they never used the word slavery, for example, but they do talk about the fact that non-free persons, well, who's left, um, would be counted as only three-fifths of a person for purposes of representation in Congress. You know, they're trying to figure out uh, a balance of power in Congress between the North and the South. That was the big faction. And uh, the, the North had the population, had, had certain resources, but the South, if you counted the slaves, had very large population. And so by counting uh, enslaved people as only three-fifths of a person, they reached a compromise. There's also a reference in there about um, not abolishing uh, the trade of, uh, of slavery for at least 20 years mm -hmm. and permission to capture runaway slaves if someone had left um, 
some state where slavery was lawful and had uh, found their way to the north, then that enslaved person could be captured and returned to their owner. So despite all these lofty words that are used in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, it was with these assumptions in mind uh, that, of course, we're not talking about women or people of color. Yeah. And and the story over the next 245 years is, of course, how we how we figure out how to expand that franchise. Uh, you know, I, I think even when you look at the, the levels of frustration that uh, people who were not included in that notion of equality in the beginning still have about uh, about this country and about the way it in, ensures some measure of equality for everyone, um, uh, the, the 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 life of this country really is defined by those struggles to push the doors open for for more people. Um, talk about where we are now, though. I mean, this is such an inflection point, I feel like, in the history of this country. And we are talking about equality and inequality in a way and with a frankness that, that I don't know that we have done uh, too often in, in, our, in our history. Um, uh, how should we think about these issues involving the Constitution and inequality specifically in 2021? Well, I think the Constitution has been a wonderful tool for advancing interests of equality uh, through litigation. Through Sometimes it's through amendment. Uh, sometimes it is through the passage of statutes. Uh, and a lot of times it has been agitated by lawsuits. Uh, we see a lawsuit pending right now, for example, that the Justice Department has brought against Georgia uh, regarding laws that on their face perhaps uh, do not make distinctions based on race. You know, the 13th Amendment passed after the Civil War, uh, the 15th Amendment uh, had said that the right to vote could not be denied on the basis of of race or color. And yet for another hundred years, we had Jim Crow laws in the South that said, well, we're not denying it on the basis of race or color, it's just whether your grandfather could vote or whether you can uh, estimate the number of bubbles on a bar of soap, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, whether you get the right to vote. And so um, the Voting Rights Act that was passed in in, uh, 1965 said that you could not uh, deny or abridge the right to vote based on color, whether it was intentional or had a disparate impact. Now, just Friday, we had an opinion decided in the U.S. Supreme Court out of Arizona, in which the current uh, majority of the Supreme Court found that some of the uh, provisions that Arizona had passed there, one which is whether you count a ballot that may be cast in the wrong precinct and whether you're allowed to collect ballots, absentee ballots for others and return them, uh, violates the Constitution and the Voting Rights Act. And the court found that that they did not, that mm-hmm. the states may do that. now advocates um, on the other side of that case say it has a disparate impact on Native American populations because they're the the, the voters who rely on that. It'll be interesting to see how things shake out in this Georgia lawsuit where the Department of Justice has alleged not just disparate impact, but also intentional discrimination that the legislature there passed that law knowing it would have a disparate impact on African-American voters. So I think part of the uh, debate these days is about this idea of 
intentional discrimination versus disparate impact. Uh, because the words say that uh, you can't deny or abridge the right to vote on the basis of race. And so even if you do not say, I'm, I'm going to pass this vote because I want to harm all, make it harder for all the black voters to get to the polls, um, if it's if it has a disparate impact on those voters, then that should still be sufficient. But I think that's where a lot of the debate lies today. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking with uh, Barb McQuaid. She's a law professor at the University of Michigan and the former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. Uh, She is helping us frame up this year's WDET book club. Uh, And instead of reading a work of nonfiction or fiction that's sort of on your bookshelf uh, this year, we are taking a look at the U.S. Constitution and looking at it with a lens toward the ways in which it influences equality and inequality in our country in 2021. Uh, we'd love to have you join the conversation, of course, as we get the book club kicked off this week. Uh, what parts of the Constitution do you find most useful or important when you think about where we are as a country in 2021? What parts of the Constitution are you most thankful for? What parts do you think have allowed our country or our society to move forward or to maybe move backward? And do you think the Constitution does enough to guarantee equality among all races, all genders, all religions, all of the differences that exist among us as Americans. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll try to include you into the conversation. Uh, Barb, before we get to listeners, I want to pick up on what you were we're just talking about, which was this uh, recent U.S. Supreme Court ruling on voting rights in Arizona. In fact, one of the episodes that we have planned this summer to talk about the U.S. Constitution is about the right to vote, about which the Constitution actually says very little. And I, th- I have always thought that that's one of the reasons that uh, it, it has been difficult to, to expand the franchise and protect it. Uh, for people who were not given uh, that franchise uh, in the original in the original document, um, uh, one of the questions that we're going to pose in this in this episode is whether America needs to settle these controversies over voting through the Constitution itself. Uh, we have tried for uh, two centuries now to do that uh, uh, through statute in, in many ways. Of course, the 19th Amendment did extend the franchise uh, to women. The 15th Amendment uh, outlawed uh, uh, discrimination on the basis of race and other, other factors against people who, who, who wanted to vote. But, but do we need something in the Constitution that explicitly protects that right, which doesn't really exist in the way that some people, I think, imagine that it should? Yeah, that's a really interesting point, Stephen. The um, the Constitution d- really gives to the states the ability to uh, administer elections, and right. I think that's where some of the mischief comes from. And so when lawsuits are brought, uh, it's typically either under the Voting Rights Act, the statute, or um, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. But, you know, that's it, it, subject to so much interpretation. It just says that... Um, 
no, no one will be denied equal protection of the laws. Uh, there's a lot of room for interpretation as to what that means. And so perhaps um, some constitutional amendment to protect the franchise would help settle once and for all how this is done. But we've seen a lot of mischief, I think. And, and that's frankly probably not the right word because it suggests something that's playful and harm, harm, harmless. But um, some real manipulation in the right to vote from gerrymandering, you know, playing around with the districts so that you can consolidate maybe all of your opponents' voters into one district to minimize their impact so that you can maximize uh, the number of jurisdictions that you can control to putting these obstacles in place that will make it harder for people of the opposing party to vote. I think that when some of these uh, laws are put in place by Republican legislatures, I don't think the goal is let's um, harm all of the black people or all of the Native American people. But what I think is happening is we want to make it harder for our rivals, those who are more inclined to vote as Democrats to vote. And so that's when you see all these things like uh, voter ID, which tends to be something that has a disparate impact on uh, not just people of color, but people who are more transient, young people, students, uh, people who maybe have voted in a different precinct last time. They only vote in presidential elections. uh, other things like uh, uh, drop boxes or early voting because it's people who have two jobs who might not make it to the polls on election day. And those might be voters who tend to vote uh, Democratic as opposed to Republican. So I think it is based on strategies. And I think that that's harmful, whichever party that might advantage. I think we want to make sure that everybody has the right to vote. And so all of these obstacles uh, I think are very anti-democratic and therefore anti-American. And so perhaps a constitutional amendment to prohibit those kinds of things would be, would be useful. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Barb McQuaid and we will get to your calls and social media comments. Brother Ray in Midtown, Brad and Shelby Township, you are up next when we get back. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there and become part of the show that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET delivers trusted news, inclusive conversations, and cultural experiences that empower the community. 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, Thanks for tuning in. I'm talking with Barb McQuaid. She's a law professor at the University of Michigan who is helping us frame out this summer's WDET book club. Instead of reading a book this summer, we are actually casting our eyes back to the country's founding, the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights, and looking at the ways that those words, that founding document, uh, influences our current notions of equality and inequality Uh, in this country. Of course, uh, the founders cast us forward uh, with some real challenges ahead in terms of expanding 
the idea of equality in America from that initial point. And we've spent 245 years trying to do that, trying to get to a more perfect union in the sense of who has full access to all of the rights and privileges that uh, we are supposed to have as Americans. Uh, we're going to discuss this summer uh, all of the different ways that uh, the Constitution uh, speaks to those questions and the, conver- the controversies that uh, still exist in 2021 over so many of those provisions. We want to hear from you as well about what you think about the U.S. Constitution and the influence that it has over us right now. Uh, are there particular parts of the Constitution uh, that you're thinking about more as we have these really uh, intense conversations in this country right now about equality? Are there parts of the Constitution that you think we need to revisit, maybe uh, excise from the Constitution or things we ought to add to the Constitution that would make achieving equality easier in 2021? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and uh, we'll try to work you into the show that way. Let's start with Brother Ray in Midtown. Ray, what's on your mind? Hey, good morning. Hi. Hey. Yes, I think this is a this is going to be a great great series of conversations. And when you look at the document, I think is one of the greatest documents that was probably written in our time. Um, when you look at the preamble, it talks about we the people, and we the people were was defined as a distinguished group of people. Uh, and when we take a look at the equal protection and separating the Constitution and the, the actual uh, the Bill of Rights, mm-hmm. it was a big dispute with the Federal Bill of Rights that it wasn't, it wasn't needed. So when, you, when we talk about bringing uh, African-Americans or enslaved Africans into the constitutional fold to have those rights that was under the Constitution, we talk about the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment that gave African Americans these rights and privileges. But my my question is that what what laws or what treaties were governing governing these enslaved individuals that was imported from Africa and sold as slaves? I mean, they had to have some some form of government that gave them some form of protections. And and my research took me to the uh, the first treaty that was formed with this uh, new government, which was the Moroccan-French-Friendship and Peace Treaty. Hmm. Now, is there any correlation with enslaved West Africans and that treaty that was formed with this new government that said that these uh, these subjects are to be treated accordingly? And I'd like to first uh, ask that yeah. question if you can. Great question, Ray. and uh, really appreciate the call and, of course, your interest uh, in, in the discussions that we're going to have. Uh, Barb, go ahead and, and answer, Ray. And then I've got a, a question that will follow up on what Ray's talking about. Yeah, that's such an interesting idea. And I, I don't know about treaties. All I know is from what I read in the Constitution is that enslaved persons were really treated as property yes. as opposed to giving people rights, uh, which is a, you know a really horrible way of thinking of fellow human beings. But I I think one of the, the the things that people use to justify their treatment of uh, uh, enslaved people, black people, was to treat them as less than human. And I think you know one of the great things about um, reading about this history, I think, is to understand how we get to where we are today with the continued, I think, poor treatment 
of Black people is this history that it's built upon of, you know, in order to treat someone like property, you have to convince yourself that they're less than human. And so that's exactly what they did, right? There's a disconnect of how do I treat a person like property? Well, I treat them like they're not a person. And so people convinced themselves and uh, talked in popular culture that uh, Black people were less than human, that they were not capable of reason, that they were not capable of reading, that they were not keep capable of governing, that uh, of earning a living. And so that they, they're better off as slaves. And so by treating people in that way, you can, I think, help help yourself accept this lie that mm-hmm. it's acceptable to treat a fellow human as a slave. And so in the constitution, the only references I see are the permission of the slave trade to continue, the capture of runaway slaves, and the treatment of non-free persons as three-fifths of a person for purposes of counting them in the legislature. And I think that, that treatment doesn't disappear just because you end slavery. And so people continue with that treatment of, of, uh, of black people as less than human. Uh, and although it subsides, I think there's still a trace of it that exists to this day. Mm, yeah. Uh, I also want to talk just a little about uh, Brother Ray's reference to the Civil War Amendments, uh, 13, mm-hmm, 14, mm-hmm. and 15, which, of course, uh, you know, follow uh, this, this bloody con- conflict to, to preserve the Union but they also cast the union in a direction that's really different from where it was before. And there are a lot of people, a lot of constitutional scholars, who kind of refer to that as a second founding, that that mm-hmm. really you were starting a new nation uh, in the late uh, 1800s, um, as opposed to continuing the one that had existed uh, for about uh, about 90 years, that, that, that this was a new country because of the things that are done in in those three amendments. So let's talk about what those amendments do and and how they shape equality going forward. Yeah, it was really a seismic change, Stephen, as you mentioned. Um, The 13th Amendment, which ends slavery. The 14th Amendment, which has a whole lot of stuff in it, but key to that is the Equal Protection Clause that says that... um, uh, you know, all all people are entitled to the equal protection of the laws. It also extends the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment to the states, which has an important uh, impact as well. Um, and then the Fifteenth Amendment is the one that says you can't deny the right to vote on the basis of race, color, or previous servitude. So because you were enslaved in the past, and so that opens the door to a lot of change in our country. And many of the lawsuits that I've referenced on all kinds of things, denying people uh, opportunities on the basis of race, come through one of these three amendments. Oftentimes, it's the 14th Amendment. Uh, and that gets used in, in lawsuits for um, a number of things, including the right to vote. Um, uh, we see it in some of these uh, police misconduct cases. Uh, we see the due process clause of the 14th Amendment in abortion cases. And so these three uh, amendments are really um, represent a, a seismic change. And and even though they pass in mostly in the in the the years just after uh, the Civil War. So by the 1870s, this is a different country. Um, we still really struggle. I mean, you still have a uh, Supreme Court, for instance, uh, 
that is determined to uh, to interpret those uh, amendments in a way that uh, that denies people uh, equality. And it's not for almost another century uh, that you see that change in in significant ways. Yeah, I think one of the um, uh, most uh, significant things that we saw was the case of Plessy versus Ferguson. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great example of um, uh, when stare decisis ends and logic begins. Uh, That was decided in 1896, so it's after these three amendments are passed, where the Supreme Court um, says, you know, separate but equal is fine. We are, it's okay to have uh, separate uh, systems for uh, black and white people um, you know, Plessy versus Ferguson was about passengers and railroad cars that you can have, you know, whites only and colored cars. Uh, as long as you have equal accommodation, you know, you allowed black people to ride on the train, then it was okay. Uh, as long as, uh, you know, it was, it was separate, but it was equal. So that was okay. And then we see that, um, challenged later in Brown versus the board of education, uh, which is, you know, to me, one of the most significant cases ever decided by the Supreme Court. That comes in 1954 in the education context when they say not only is it separate, but it's just not equal. Um, and having separate schools for black and white kids um, is really sending messages because the black schools are always inferior to the white schools. And um, no, separate but equal just can't stand. And so uh, as a matter of equal protection of the law under the 14th Amendment. Um, we are overruling Plessy versus Ferguson um, and saying that uh, separate is not equal, that, uh, that that's what equal protection of the law means. And so that's a really important decision. But as you say, it, it comes more than 50 years later before we get that. And then, you know, to this day, have we lived up to the promise of Brown versus Board of Education when we see these disparate impact types of cases? Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to John on the east side. John, what's on your mind? Well, listening to some of the shows, uh, Civics 101 you guys ran over the the holiday Mm -hmm. was pretty interesting. And one of the things I learned was life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness started off as life, liberty, and property. And I was wondering, does this also include women as property, and does the Constitution sort of um, bring us down the the road to women as property and states' rights? And then my final question for Barb is... uh, Perhaps we could invite one of our most famous constitutional scholars to the book club, uh, Mr. Uh, Barack Obama. <laughs> mm, yeah. We would love to do that, right? It would be a fantastic choice. <laughs> that's right. John, that's a great suggestion. Uh, but but what about John's questions? Yeah, John, you raise a great point. It doesn't say, you know, per se, talk about women as property, but of course, that's the way women were treated. You know, you belong to your father until you were married, and then you belong to your husband. Um, it, it really doesn't talk about any rights for women. It just talks about voting rights. And the assumption is, of course, women don't get the right to vote, but women were denied the right to vote uh, until the 19th Amendment, which was passed just over 100 years ago. You know, Last year, we had that 100th anniversary of uh, the right of women to vote. So that doesn't come until, um, you know, f- what, 50, 60 years after 
uh, we see the right um, is is permitted for people based on race. Uh, We see uh, equality in voting for the sexes come in 1920. Um, And so... uh, there is, uh, again, just baked into the Constitution this assumption that all men are created equal, uh, who uh, are white and have property. And um, I, I think that's what's uh, so interesting about, um, you know, things like the 1419 Project. Uh, what assumptions are there in our system and how do they manifest themselves today? There was an effort to pass an Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s that uh, was sailing along until we had uh, a group of women led by uh, Phyllis Schlafly and others who pushed back against it and enjoyed their what they considered their protected status in society about you know, not not having to be drafted, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, that, that's one, I think, inequality that exists today. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, the, the recently deceased justice of the Supreme Court, who was for a long time a women's rights advocate, um, actually you know, made her mark by bringing lawsuits, not on behalf of women, but on behalf of men, mm-hmm. on the theory that the male justices would be more receptive <laughs> to laws that were harming men. And uh, you know, maybe she was right, but she found situations where men um, were be- being uh, uh, denied benefits when they were the survivor, for example, of a woman who was serving in the military. Uh, or estates, or you know, when there were widows, uh, social security benefits, and those kinds of things, because the laws were based on the theory that the man would be the primary breadwinner. And so, by pointing out these just sort of false assumptions in the law that were having a discriminatory effect on men, she was able to get many of these laws reversed. Uh, but you know, we still continue to chip away at some of those things. And I, you know, I for one believe that if there were to be an equal rights amendment. Even without it, I think equal, equal protection of the law does require women mm-hmm. uh, to be drafted. Um, and I think it just goes back to our notions of women as these frail, uh, fragile creatures that could not withstand <laughs> uh, certain inconveniences in life in, in being in serving. But uh, because I think that's an important barrier to the way we see women in, in other types of professions. You know, if we're going to have a woman be commander in chief of the armed forces, we probably ought to have women subject. You know, of course, right now we have a voluntary military service, but boys, when they turn 18 and become men, yep. must register for the draft. And I, I, I see it as an arbitrary relic of that notion that women are not up to the task, uh, that we don't require women to uh, register for the draft as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Barbara McQuaid, uh, it's going to be really great to have you with us for at least some of the episodes that we are going to have this, uh, this summer when the book club, but of course... It's especially great to have you helping us frame out all of these discussions. Thanks so much for joining us, and thanks for all your work so far. Thanks very much, Stephen. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to change subjects. Senator Debbie Stabenow is going to join the show to talk about the expanded child tax credit and what she and President Joe Biden talked about over the weekend when he was right here in Michigan. Also remember, if you want to join the WDET Book Club or find out more about it, go to WDET.org constitution. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. <laughs> 